Flashing sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Review for you in quick order what Maduro has done to his people. He has starved them, he has denied them food and medicine and basic meeting of humanitarian needs. It's time for him to go. When you ask someone to list the top qualities of a good teacher, you get words like patient, caring, diligent. Where do these qualities come from? Certainly not from Section 9563 of the State Mandated Teacher Evaluation and Accountability Metric. No, these are divine qualities that come from above. And now, Stacy Washington. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being with us. We are actually going to have uh, the speaker that you just heard there, Marilyn Rames. She's going to be with us next segment. We're going to be talking about her new book. Uh, the title of her new book is The Master Teacher, 12 Spiritual Lessons That Can Transform Schools and Revolutionize Public Education. So awesome to have her with us. I'm excited to speak with her. Um, but right now, I want to, we're, we're going to kind of catch up on the show sheet a little bit. Um, and our last caller, I understand where she was coming from. She was saying that parents are ultimately responsible, but... I, I do I do take an issue with saying that parents are solely responsible. So in other words, any other factors in our world that we find where people are putting out dangerous things, is if, if that's the case, you could say, well, you're responsible for making sure that everything that goes into your child's mouth is safe. So um, if they eat something that wasn't cooked properly or wasn't, you know, it, then it's really the parent's fault. It's the parent's responsibility. I do believe that the parents are responsible but I also believe that we live in a, in a society where we hold people accountable for the products that they produce. And we do that in a lot of different ways. Some of it is regulation. Some of it is just what's acceptable. We don't, we don't, don't uh, permit people to, it's no, there's no law against it, but we don't permit people to make movies that depict animal abuse, you know, where it involves actual animals being abused. Uh, there are a ton of things that are not acceptable in this society. And depicting society as an acceptable, uh, depicting suicide as an acceptable remedy to family problems for teenagers is something that should not be accepted. What Netflix is doing in pushing the envelope here is trying to change what is normal and the lives that are being lost in their attempt to normalize something. That's where we're taking the issue here. So nothing I've said takes away from the responsibility of parents to do what's right for their kids, to monitor them, et cetera. But we live in a world where our kids are exposed to things outside of what the parents have control over. Unless you're in, in one of those fortunate situations where you're called to homeschool, you're homeschooling. And so basically your kids are with you all the time and you're in a community of people who only believe as you do. So the outside influences for your kids are very limited. And that's, that's actually, that's a wonderful situation to be in. Um, but there is also a, a false sense of comfort there that you don't have to worry about these things because your kids aren't exposed to them. And what I found, especially when in reading the research and in speaking to other Christian parents in that, in, in similar situations in a, in really a wide variety of situations, I find that even as safe as your child may be and as sheltered as they may be, the evil finds its way in. The water runs to the lowest place. And when you're encountering that, your kids have to be equipped to deal with it. And you, you can't be 
kind of out there, um, you know, kind of floating out there thinking, well, I've avoided all of that because at some point your child is going to encounter the reality of American culture. And also only blaming the parents for allowing their kids to see 13 Reasons doesn't take into account the fact that Netflix intentionally put content out that they knew had a high probability of negatively impacting the viewers that they were targeting. And they did it anyway. They, they knew that this was possible. And they just said, you know what? We're going to gamble because we want, we like the content. We like the show and we want to push the envelope. I don't think they should be able to get away with that. Too many people are getting away with doing whatever they want. And of course, in the end, they don't get away with it. But, you know, I'm talking about right now. We need to hold people accountable. So, but I did appreciate the, the perspective and it's a great question. Is it the parent's responsibility? Yes, yes it is. But it's also responsibility of Netflix as a content producer. Um, call lines are still open. 866-963-2037. 866-963-2037. Stacey Washington. You can find out more at StaceyOnTheRight.com. You can also check out our marriage and family conference. It's coming up in June. Um, it's at UrbanFamilyTalk.com. You can find out everything about it. The agenda, the speakers, the panels. It's going to be a fantastic event. So I talked about this group that the Democrats have launched to rebrand their, uh, their weird products, which their weird failed, uh, un, unconvincing products that they've got going on, their, their legislative aims. And I talked about it being called Future Majority. And several other large Democratic outside groups have also announced aggressive spending plans for the year. Uh, Priorities USA, which is the main Democratic super PAC that will support the party's presidential nominee. They're going to spend about $100 million during the run-up to 2020. Um, Priorities USA also has an affiliated not-for-profit group. Now, future majority is not something you would have heard about before now because they've not really had a big official public presence, but they've been active for months. They've been testing their strategy by releasing and advertising videos, advising Democratic organizations, and enlisting personalities like Alyssa Milano to share their content on social media. So if you want to see what they've done, go to Alyssa Milano's Twitter feed, scroll down. Some of the videos there will have been produced by this future majority organization. Now, they also have sent out uh, a huge memo they prepared. It was sent out in March of 2019, last month. And they based it on focus groups of swing voters and party switchers in the Midwest. And they believe, based on their, uh, their, their focus groups, that there is, quote, an opening to defeat Trump with the right candidate and the right message. But Democrats must rehabilitate their image in these states first. The memo also advised Democrats to frame government spending as, quote, investments. So voters can see that their tax money is being cut put to good use and then also to focus on a short number of policy priorities and avoid using terms like a laundry list or having long laundry lists of items because voters tend to associate that with um, too much government spending. Isn't that something? It's the truth. Okay. Um, Their creative team, in case you're wondering, is actually people from Hollywood, writers and producers, Marshall Heskovitz, uh, Greg Hurwitz, Callie Curry, Sean Ryan, Billy Ray, 
One video that they released last fall focused on stagnant incomes and booming CEO pay, which, hint, that's no longer appropriate. CEO pay is going to boom. If you own a company and you're running it, your pay is going to be bigger than everybody else's. I don't care who you are. Just ask Bernie Sanders, okay? He's not a CEO, but he's currently reaping the benefits of writing a book that nincompoops bought, whether they read it or not. And he's not going to say, I'm not going to take the, the large lion's share of the income from this because I don't deserve it. Small people deserve it, like the people who work at the printer that printed the book. He's not going to do that. Why would he? He wrote the book. He's going to take the profits from it. And so are CEOs. And there's no law that we can implement that's going to stop them from doing that, short of taking the companies, and then they're not CEOs anymore. And so what do they care? They'll take the money they already have and move to a country that's not bothering them. That's how it works when you're rich. So, and the other thing is incomes are no longer stagnant. Incomes are now increasing. Wages, wages are growing. We, we have that going on because of the economy and our GDP. Fantastic. So in one of the videos, the narrator says, let's listen to this garbage. The people in power are so busy giving tax breaks to the wealthiest that they blow up the deficit and leave nothing for roads and bridges, nothing for veterans or Medicare, nothing for job training. Something has to change, and we're going to change it. Now, first of all, why is the only place that you can get job training the government? Can you help me understand why, if you want job training, you can't go get that from somewhere else, why you need the government to give it to you for free? And, and there it is. If anybody can just stop for a second when you're hearing this messaging, stop and say, wait a minute, why does the government have to give me that? Why, why do I need a Democrat to be in office to force a, a program down my throat when I can just go get a job and get training on the job? When I can go, and student loans are plentiful, I can go get a loan and go do an apprenticeship program or uh, an 18-month program for, you know, you name it. They have 18-month programs for almost everything now. You take the technical school training of 18 months. Now you've been trained to do a job. And when you graduate, they usually pair you with a business that's looking for someone with your skill set. And boom, you're off and running. So again, why do you need the government to do that for you? Here's a hint. You don't. You don't need that. All right. Um, so now I want to pivot over. You know, one thing I have not seen is people basically saying, you know, you got to chalk this up to a loss about the Mueller report. Instead, the Democrats have devoted three subcommittees to investigating the president because apparently two years and $25 million just isn't enough. Um, the Mueller report and the team, I believe at one point he had 24 lawyers on that team all investigating the president, and that wasn't enough. So here's Ken Cuccinelli talking about the Mueller report, and he has a pretty interesting take on it. It's number four. Well, this president's running for re-election next year, and I think he's perfectly happy to do battle on these issues in the public arena. What he's not going to concede to do, as he's already said and demonstrated, is he's not going to play their game their way in the House of Representatives. And they don't have the authority, because of the separation of powers, to compel him to do it. So why should he? Um, I, we'll, we'll see this played out, I think, over the next year and a half. But I can, I, my view of the media perspective on this is that you've got the so-called Acela Corridor, the New York-Washington corridor of people who get all worked up into a lather about a, a lot of this stuff that ordinary Americans 
don't care a lick about. There is no collusion. There's no obstruction. Let's move on to make this country even better than it is. And why are you people wasting your time with all this? I think that's the average American's view. It's by and large my view, um, particularly when you had as much cooperation by the president and the White House with the Mueller investigation, which they thought very ill of anyway in the first place. So when, when we're talking about the American people, just generally speaking, you know, American people, and remember last week I was talking about how when or whenever the Mueller report came out last week for last, um, I was talking about listening to C-SPAN radio on my phone and thinking through, you know, that as the people were calling in, I was kind of gauging their responses, partially based on what line she would say. This is, you know, Jim calling in on a, the Democrat line. This is Fred calling in on the independent line. With It was really consistent. Almost every call on the independent line, they said, well, I was fully prepared to, you know, see the president impeached because I thought he was guilty because that's what I've been told for two years. And it turns out he's not guilty of anything. And I really think we should move on. And I heard it over and over again. Move on, move on, move on. So there's there's a you know how if you, if you go to the doctor, let's say you go to the doctor and you the doctor comes in and based on what you've told the nurse and everything, they kind of have an idea of what's wrong with you. And so they take your temperature and they, they start, you know, getting ready to prescribe you with something. And then you start describing some additional symptoms that you didn't share with the nurse. And so at that point, the doctor can assess you and also add in those additional symptoms or they could just ignore you. Now, I'm not talking about whether or not you have a good doctor or some doctor that I know. This is just a hypothetical. But if the doctor chooses to ignore the symptoms that you describe to them, that means they might be treating you for something that's not actually the case. And the Democrats appear to be trying to treat Americans to a candidate and, and a process, namely more investigations, that Americans have not described a need for. Americans do not need more investigations. They need, you know, uh, to move on. They want to move on. We want to move on. I, I don't think they're going to let us, but we should keep trying to move on. All right. When we get back, we're going to have Marilyn Rames. She's an author, founder, CEO of the nonprofit Teachers Who Pray, award-winning blogger, just everything. She's going to be back with us in just a couple of minutes. Keep it here. When an abortion-minded woman walks into a pre-born pregnancy center, she encounters love and compassion and gets to meet her baby by ultrasound. The mom was like, I'm going to go to the abortion clinic. And I already had my mind made up. This mom didn't make it to the abortion clinic. Instead, God led her to a pre-born center. And the lady is giving me my ultrasound. She's like making these weird faces. And then she's like, it's two. And I'm like, I just start crying. I started texting my friends and like, I can't. The Ministry of Preborn was able to help this mom save not just one life, but two through ultrasounds. Preborn centers help save babies' lives and souls. Preborn runs and leads Christian pregnancy centers all over the country. To find out more, go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Or dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 and say baby. Your love can save a life. 
This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. Just about anyone who sets out to defend Western civilization will be criticized and vilified. Jonah Goldberg wrote about Western civilization in his book, The Suicide of the West. Ben Shapiro has recently written about the right side of history, how reason and moral purpose made the West great. In a future commentary, I plan to discuss Shapiro's book, but for now we'll merely look at two incidents that prove my point. First, when his book came out, The Economist magazine smeared Ben Shapiro by calling him a member of the alt-right. This is crazy. He's an Orthodox Jew who frequently has criticized the alt-right. The magazine did apologize. Second, he was criticized for a tweet that lamented the collapse of the roof of the Notre Dame Cathedral because he referred to it as a magnificent monument to Western civilization. His follow-up tweet even acknowledged that it was built on the Judeo-Christian heritage. A Washington Post article included his tweet alongside various conspiracy theorists and Richard Spencer, the man who coined the term alt-right. The trouble with all this criticism of Western civilization is that it is coming from people who enjoy the fruits of the West but may not even recognize it. Jonah Goldberg uses this illustration that I found helpful. Imagine a party platform that had these planks. Support for human rights belief in the rule of law, dedication to democracy, free speech, freedom of conscience, admiration of the scientific method, property rights, and the toleration of technological and or cultural innovation. He argues that 90% of the people who criticize the defenders of Western civilization actually believe these things. They just don't see the connection. That's why we need to help them connect the dots. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. For a free copy of Kirby's booklet, A Biblical View on Socialism, go to viewpoints.info slash socialism. That's viewpoints.info slash socialism. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, okay. Yeah, I'm so excited to speak to our next guest. Welcome. Follow me at Stacy on the Right on Twitter and Instagram. And um, also check out our content at onenewsnow.com. Can't wait to have you get over there and check all of that cool stuff out. Right now, it's my pleasure to welcome Marilyn Rame. She's an author, founder, and CEO of the nonprofit Teachers Who Pray, an award-winning blogger, for the Education Post, Education Week, and Huffington Post, and her new book, The Master Teacher, 12 Spiritual Lessons That Can Transform Schools and Revolutionize Public Education, is on my must-read list. Marilyn, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Stacey. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I I love the title of your new book, um, because I talk about this a lot from the perspective of a mom, you know, praying at school, praying over the building, you know, going around, whether even if you have to do it when no one's there, praying on that property. Mm -hmm. Um, You're you seem to be of the same vein, only you're coming from the perspective of a teacher. So you're in the classroom. Yes, absolutely. And I, you know, a common misconception of Prayer is that you can't pray in school, that it's illegal. And that's not entirely true. It's, it's been deemed illegal or unconstitutional to pray with students as a teacher in a school, you know, in a, in a public school. But it's, of course, you can't ban prayer. If you're a teacher and you pray, you don't need to necessarily 
announce it to the world. I mean, we have a relationship with God. We can pray silently. We can pray as a community of like-minded teachers before, after school, right there in the school. And so that's what Teachers Who Pray is all about. And um, we're also about building up uh, professional development of teachers with a biblical lens. So what has the response been? Because I think when you say people think prayer is illegal, we really do yeah. think that. I mean, I, I when my kids were in public school and they were little and they used to bow their head over their food, um, kids and teachers would tell them, you can't do that. You can't you can't bow your head over your food in public school. Oh and I told God. them you can do it. You you absolutely can do it. And when I mentioned it, the principal would say, oh, no, they're allowed to do that. I'm like, but the kids don't think they can. The kids are telling my kids they can't yes. do it. And the adults in the lunchroom are saying you can't do that. You know, a lot of times the people in the lunchroom are volunteers like moms and dads or what have you. Mm-hmm. But the point is that th- that's what the kids were told. Yeah, that's really sad. And actually, it's illegal <laughs> to tell a student that they cannot pray in, over their food. Um, that That is actually illegal because students' legal uh, ability or freedom of religion is pretty much uninhibited in a public school setting. They have a right to their religious liberties in schools. They, teachers are considered... Um, agents of the state as public school employees. So that's why we can't, like, prohibit or promote faith. We're supposed to be neutral. But students are individual citizens, and they have every right to pray, as long as it's not interrupting the classroom or, you know, harassing or any kind of um, -of out-of-order disruption. They have a right to pray. So, you know, the, the problem really resides, in my view, in preparation for teaching. They don't talk about religious liberties in schools. No one really knows the rules. It's kind of like a constitutional lawyer would have to um, come and explain it to teachers. because it, it, it can be kind of nuanced, but in, in preparation school for teachers, they don't talk about it at all. So it's a long-standing myth that, oh, anything God-related is out of order, whether it's from the students or from the staff. Um, and that is actually cause for lawsuits against the school district, but from the reverse. Like, you you, you know, you've um, impeded uh, my religious liberty, so now I'm going to sue the school. As opposed to, like, getting sued for having your religion in school. So, Marilyn, what brought you to researching this and becoming such an expert? Because I, I'm, you're probably the first teacher I've ever spoken to. And I used to be an elected school board member and I volunteered. I met uh, like every teacher in the building where my kids went to elementary school um, and a lot of the middle school mm-hmm. teachers. And so I knew a lot of educators and I've never heard the kind of things you're sharing now um, and this knowledge depth that you have from an educator before. Yes, well, it is. Um, it's a gift. It's a calling. I believe God called me to this faith. I never wanted, I never set out to be like a faith leader in public education. I actually was a journalist in New York City when God called me to become a teacher. And on 9-11, I had an epiphany that I was teaching Sunday school in my little storefront church in Harlem. 
and I fantasized like privately about becoming a teacher. I told a few people, but Aaron's like, why would you do that? There's no prestige, there's no money, there's like, you're doing great what you're doing now. I had a, a master's in journalism from Columbia University, and mm. it was, you know, one of those things where I, when the, the towers came down, I knew in my heart that God had called me to become a teacher. And within six months, I had quit my job, and I came back to Chicago and um, started a master's degree in education program. And so it's, it's, it's a niche that God just called me to. I've been a prayer person, a prayer, person of prayer for most of my life. And when I stepped into the classroom, I knew that the job was much harder than any human being could um, ever fully satisfy and do well. So I leaned on what I knew from a child, and I started praying. And it, it, truly, that's the only, only reason why I stayed in education and been involved for um, over 15 years now is because God has really kept me grounded in why He called me to do this work. And it's really sad that in America, a country that's founded on religious liberty and religious freedom, that so many people just give that up because they feel like, well, separation of church and state, and they don't investigate, they don't look deeper, find out the nuances of what that actually means. And um, and for me, as a journalist, I think I don't take no for an answer very well. I push, because that's kind of like my inclination, naturally. And so I just kept searching, like, okay, this can't be all that there is. It's just no God in school at all. And um, through some basic, it wasn't even like, really, really deep research, but just talking to attorneys and reaching out to the faith community um, in law, I got the answers that I needed that made sense to me. Mm. So yeah. have you seen any in, in your work? Because uh, you've written for some pretty huge publications, um, Education Post, Education Week, Huffington Post. Those are not tiny little, you know, blogs. Those are those are big sites. <laughs> and so you're writing there. And I, I feel like you're kind of you're like the sword cutting through the butter or, you know, the, you're, you're something unique. That's, that's the perspective you're putting out there. I know plenty of women who are Christians who are teachers. I know plenty of administrators and all of that who are, are, are Christians. I know lots of women who pray in schools or, you know, who, who do that kind of work, but it, your position is unique because you came from the journalism field, you became a teacher and now you're advocating mm-hmm. for more prayer in schools do you do you see do you see it actually happening like more prayer and then changes in schools happening like is there an impact from that? Yes, there are many many stories um, of impact from all across the country, and the biggest impact, the most immediate impact, is that the teacher changes, but the teacher's heart changes, and once that happens, it's like the floodgates open up for opportunity for God to move. So if I'm extremely frustrated and I'm crying after school, I want to quit, I'm exhausted, burning out, there is very little capacity for God to use me in a, in a mighty way because my cup is not, my cup is empty and you can't pour living water out of an empty cup. 
Mm. And so it's important that teachers build themselves up. And so the prayer is essentially for us first. And then it, it overflows. Our cup overflows and others around us are blessed. And, and that's what I discovered uh, when I first started teaching because I came into the prayer being like, oh, this kid is having a hard time or this family is really going through or I can't get this kid to read. And I'm praying for everybody else. And then I had a prayer group with a group of teachers. This was back in 2007, my first prayer group. And we said, okay, let's take prayer requests. And one teacher was, she just said, like, I, I'm actually living in a hotel with my husband um, because we lost our home. And when he's angry, he beats me up. Wow. And we're looking like, whoa, <laughs> okay, back it up. Let's back it up. Because teachers are human. We have human problems. We go through bankruptcy. We have marital problems. We have sometimes cancer, like, but we don't talk about those things where when we're in school, we talk about, oh, Johnny can't read or this kid got suspended for hitting or whatever. And we, you know, so I woke up and I, then I had to confront some things in my own life that I needed to confront with my group. And once that happened, that I could really have joy and I could really feel free to kind of live in the moment and not be so stressed out. So I guess that's a long explanation to kind of explain like the change that happened. Like God wants first us, we have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. <laughs> and then we, we have to do that. And from that flows the move of the Holy Spirit through our hearts. So mm. that, that's really what we're reaching for. Of course, we love our kids. Of course, we want things to be better in our classrooms. But if we're not whole and well, there's very little hope that we can really, on the spiritual level, bring that, um, that wave that we need, that wave of transformation in our classrooms. Well, I'm glad you shared that because I think one of the things that's helpful to us and, and we know as Christians that prayer works, that God use prayer is how we move the hand of God. We know that, but as human beings, we need reminding that this is, this is what God does when we pray to him. This is what he does. And yeah, when you talk about the struggles that teachers go through, um, we, my daughter and I were, <laughs> we were at Hobby Lobby on Saturday and we walk in and, you know, I've got a no makeup hair pulled back in a tight ponytail we're, we're going in there. We're going to buy teacher gifts. So we're going into Hobby Lobby. We're on a mission. And who should we see in line with no makeup on, you know, I guess on a mission herself, but our daughter's orchestra teacher. <laughs> but because we were in the Hobby Lobby, Marilyn, I didn't recognize her because I don't like, I'm so used to seeing them in the building that if I see them somewhere else, it takes my brain a couple seconds. Like, do I know this person? Yes. They look familiar. <laughs> oh, you're Madison's orchestra teacher. Now, this woman obviously yeah. is allowed to leave the school building. She doesn't live there, but that's what happened. I was like trying to figure out. And then when I saw her, she said, um, it looks like a great time for us to be, you know, getting some, some cool stuff from Hobby Lobby. And we both smiled and laughed. And then we said hello really quickly and kept it moving. But in that moment, as yeah. we were walking away and I glanced back, I thought, 
you know, she's she's shopping at Hobby Lobby. She's probably got other errands to run. She's just like we are. I just it, it was yeah. weird because I told myself that I know that, <laughs> but I told myself that, and then we went and bought we needed to buy. But what you're doing is you're that's more real for us as parents when we see the teachers in the building. They're in their role, even if it's at night. But then when we see them out, that's when you you kind of wonder, oh. Oh, she's out by herself. I wonder where her kids are. Oh, she, you know what? You start mm-hmm. like that. And you're you're making that more real by sharing um, the impact that prayer has had and how teachers are struggling and going through the same things we all go through. And yes. when they're praying, they're they're getting blessed. And we, we need the teachers to pray just like we need the parents to. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, teachers are often treated as widgets. Like, we're a means to an end. We want our kids to grow academically and be healthy, social, and emotionally. And you're in charge of this. You make it happen, teacher. And we don't, most of the time, think about the humanity of that teacher. They're very, uh, they're utility almost. Like, and that becomes... Sometimes our own identity as teachers, we accept that. Like, mm. we, we act as if we can't be human. We can't um, have a bad day. And we beat ourselves up. And so, you know, we know that our work is divine. I always say we acknowledge the humanity of teachers and the divinity of the work. The work is divine. We're pouring into the next generation of students. And we're loving other people's children with the goal of doing that unconditionally. Mm. So it's divine work, but we're human. So the only way to bridge that divide is through prayer and meditation and reading God's Word and having community with the believers in the building. And so it's, it's really essential because not only do parents sometimes forget that the teachers are human, but the teachers sometimes forget that they're human. I remember one time I had a series oh, no. of... I heard the music, which means we have oh, like 30 seconds. Okay. And I, I would love, Marilyn, if you would tell people where to buy the book so they can get this in their hands or maybe give it as a gift to teachers that they know. Um, where do we find it? So you guys are super early. <laughs> it's going to be on Amazon later on in May. But okay. I went on and just did the interview. But yes, Amazon.com. And then we also have a a conference coming up this weekend, Friday and Saturday here in Chicago. Go to teacherswhoplay.org. And we're going to talk about the truth behind social and emotional learning. Perfect. Marilyn Rames, thank you for joining us. We'll be back with more after this. Hi, this is Steve Tiber with 8 Days of Hope. We've been all over the country helping disaster victims who lose everything. It's truly a blessing. I really don't have the words to express. And yet, they see a glimmer of hope when a volunteer shows up. Building the home, that's the second reason we're here. The number one reason is to share the gospel and and give them hope. It's everything that's right in America. I mean, it really represents the, the best that we have to offer. That's one of the main reasons for doing it, is being able to be the hands and feet of Jesus and coming out and working with so many wonderful volunteers. I just felt like it's important in this day and age to teach a child uh, how to serve. Please go to our website, 8daysofhope.com, and click on Get Involved. Submit your email address, and the next time we go anywhere with a disaster, we'll invite you to come along as well. I love coming in the job room because you can see 
these pieces of paper, they aren't just a piece of paper. Right. It's a family that's hurting, and it's a gospel opportunity. And you know, I just thank God, you know, for this moment. I mean, I'll be back in my home, and I know it's going to be awesome. Come love others with Eight Days of Hope. Mickey Addison. My challenge to you was to evangelize your children and to disciple your children and to give them the truth. Because if you don't do that, then we have a culture that's waiting in the wings to disciple your kids and to make converts. And so I really believe and I expect the Lord to really set some people free today. The Marriage, Family and Life Conference is coming June 20th through 22nd. Learn more and register at urbanfamilytalk.com. There are many ways you can listen to the shows of Urban Family Talk. One of those ways is through our very own app. Whether you have an iPhone or an Android, just go to the App Store and search for Urban Family Talk. You'll have immediate access to 24-hour programming as well as the podcast for each show. You'll be able to tune in no matter where you are. Speaking of tuning in, we have our own channel on another radio app called Tune In. Cool, right? Urban Family Talk is everywhere. Just download the app and take us wherever you go. Donald Trump's America. As tensions continue to rise with the United States, Iran's foreign minister accuses the U.S. and others of actively seeking a regime change there. Mohammad Javad Zarif on Fox News Sunday said there are those within the U.S. government who want to turn Iranians against their leaders. They want to put Iranian people under enough pressure, and this has been said by both uh, Mr. Bolton, as well as Secretary Pompeo, that they want to put pressure on the Iranian people so that they would take action against the government. National Security Advisor John Bolton, also on Fox, dismissed the accusations, saying the mistreatment and bad acts of Iran speak volumes. The uh, Iranian regime continues to oppress its own people. It continues to be the uh, world's largest financier of international terrorism. Bolton says the president, even after pulling out of the Iran deal, still wants to negotiate on Iran's nuclear program and will be ready to talk when the Iranians are. Grinnell Scott, Fox News. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hey, welcome back to the program. So good to be with you. Um, we are going to go straight to the phones, and then we'll kind of circle back around to the show sheet. Hey, Keith in Michigan, thanks for calling the show today. Hi. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Sure. One thing that I, um, it was eye-opening, I never watched um, Hillary's, um, Hillary's America by Dinesh D'Souza. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to look at that. Yes, or watch I it. did see it. Yeah, at the theater. Well, <laughs> one of the things that came to mind, or there's a couple of things, quite a few actually, but first one was four major aspects of the criminal enterprise, develop a plan, recruit, make a pitch, and if caught, always deny, never give up the con. He uses his newfound understanding of criminality as a framework for explaining the success and ultimate goal of the Democratic <laughs> Party. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I thought was really interesting, and you love this, do you remember Ida B. Wells? Yes. And um, this is a recap that I, I saw. I love that woman. I mean, she, was, she stood up for what was right. There was one particular heart-wrenching scene in which the journalist named Ida B. Wells attempted to intervene in a lynching. Wells, like Harriet Tubman before her, was a gun-toting Republican black woman. She devoted herself to ending the practices of lynching and segregation, mostly through her work as a reporter for a Republican newspaper. 
She was treated in the movie as one of the great heroes or heroines of yesteryear, repairing a number of times toward the end of the film. The one thing that was quite interesting as a recap from that movie was the reason why she was never brought up as the heroine for rights, and that it was, um, uh, shoot, well, the, the um, Rosa Parks. Right. Oh, yeah. Rosa Parks was brought up, but not Ida B. Wells, because she was a Republican black woman. Right, and, and Rosa Parks... Um, obviously I don't, I don't really feel like Rosa Parks was political at all. Like she wasn't running around working for democratic causes, but she can be painted as a Democrat because there's not a lot known about where she was politically, where with Ida B. Wells, she was obviously a Republican and she wrote about that kind of stuff. And she was a gun supporter, gun owning, gun toting, gun supporter. Um, and that's why, just like Condoleezza Rice, you never see them lionizing Condoleezza Rice. They don't name buildings after her. They don't, um, liberals don't write, make movies about her. They don't put her up as an example for black girls to follow in public schools in America because she's a Republican. But if she had been a Democrat, they would, because obviously, you know, she's very successful. She's very accomplished. Um, the, the thing that you say is right. I saw online once they were talking about um, Stacey Dash but they were saying one of the people in the comments on something that Stacey Dash was mentioned in said, oh, remember, she's she's sides with the enemy. We we don't mention her. We act as if she doesn't exist. So it's not that blacks in America don't see Stacey Dash or know that she's out there talking, commentating, whatever. It's that they choose to ignore her because she's a Republican. The same thing they do with all black Republican women. So the point that you're making is very apt and, and, you know, it's just par for the course, but Ida B. Wells, she's someone that I, I really look up to her as well. She was very, very smart and fearless, which is a fantastic attribute to have when you're, when you're going to be out in the public doing anything. Uh, thank you for that call. So I want to get to, so Pompeo has been getting interviewed at different locations. Like he'll be someplace and people are like stick a mic in his face and say, Hey, you know, what do you, what do you think about the Russian interference and blah, 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 blah. Now, I don't know if you, if you're just tuning into the show and you've never heard it before, you might be thinking, well, the Russian interference is important. Well, is it just important this election cycle or has it been important every single time? Because guess what? They've meddled and interfered every single time. So, why is it only important this time? Because if Hillary Clinton had won, they would have minimized the story the same way the Obama administration did. The Obama administration was aware that Russia was hacking into stuff and they didn't make a big deal out of it because they wanted to connect it to Trump. Had Trump lost, they wouldn't have needed it. It would have been ammunition in their back pocket that would have come to nothing. But since he did win, they have to make a big deal out of Russian collusion, Russian interference, et cetera, et cetera. They've been doing this since... I don't even know when. Let's let's listen to uh, Pompeo. It's number three. Yeah, sure. Uh, of course, uh, the Russians interfered. It happened in uh, the run-up to the election in 2016. Of course, uh, they should have done everything they could to prevent it. I, I, I don't want to go back and revisit and critique. We have the we have the mission now to make sure this doesn't happen in 2020. But it, I mean, but, but it goes without saying there were threats to our elections in 1974 too, mm-hmm. right? And uh, they they interfered our elections in the 80s. This is there's, there's the, the fact that this town seems shocked by the fact that the Russians don't care for us. In that case, the Soviet Union, I find stunning. <laughs> I find stunning because there's, I mean, this is reported. There's it's in books. You can see the Russian efforts over an extended period of time. And we should expect in 2015, 
2050, the Russians will be added still. <laughs> now, isn't that kind of funny? Because <laughs> he's saying no matter when it is, they're going to be doing this thing. This is their thing. They're going to do it. Uh, we should not be shocked by it. We should expect it. Um, so why, why are we shocked by it? Why are we having trouble? Like what, what exactly is happening that makes this seem so crazy and unexpected, unexpected? Oh, it's Trump. He's the common denominator here. And the, the first minute that you bring that up, that you, that you tell people, well, this, you're upset about Russia meddling because of Donald Trump. You're not really upset about it unless it has something to do with this election. If Hillary had won, you wouldn't have cared about it. Then you see people, they're kind of, they're kind of like, oh, recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. They've got to stop for a second and let all the talking points roll down so they can scroll down to a new set of thoughts because they're like, they don't know how to deal with that. We have to, we have to continue to pray for wisdom, discernment, and uh, the opening of eyes as time goes on, that, that the truth would ring out and be known. So I want to get back to, um, we, we have a couple things. First of all, and I could have brought this up. I just realized, because I have this story here, um, I could have asked Amy Kramer about it. There's so much to talk to her about with her having the connection to the Trump campaign and uh, Ms., Mrs. Trump, First Lady Trump and all that. Um, but this is something that, this is w- woven throughout the show, actually. Venezuela actually banned private gun ownership less than a decade ago. So a lot of people will, they'll kind of get all nostalgic and start talking like they got a pipe dream. Like, oh, if we're ever able to ban guns, it's going to be so great. That's, that's how they talk. If we're able to do it, you'll see. There won't be any more school shootings. You'll see. Everything will be fine. You know? Uh, dogs and cats will get along. Lions will no longer eat their prey. We will experience a utopia of epic proportions if we just let go of our obsession with guns. If we just release the guns, we will. Yes, that's how they talk. Well, Venezuelans thought that and did that. And look what's happening to them. Amy mentioned that there's video. If you're watching on a screen, there's video of tanks rolling over people. Tanks rolling over people. Come on now. You know how the government doesn't get to roll over you because the dictator has decided, because everybody always calls Donald Trump, he's a, he's a dictator in waiting. Well, then the last thing you want to do is disarm Americans. Because if he really is a dictator and he really is about to come for you, what you really want to do is be able to throw some sandbags up and fortify your position and get together with some of your other cohorts who believe as you do and declare that your state isn't receiving any more federal visitors. You know, states are allowed to do that. States have lots of rights that other countries that have individual states in them, those states don't have any rights. They're a part of the whole. They're only divided off into states for the purposes of governance. The United States is actually a group of states that chooses to be a part of a federal government. And when you think Donald Trump is he's a dictator now, he's hauling gays and blacks off and putting them into concentration camps, your state militia, your National Guard members who are in your state. I mean, there's there's so much. If you don't believe me, check the historical documents. We've never had to do it before. 
But if you're really honestly sitting there listening to this show, as some liberals do, God bless you and thank you for your ears. And you really believe that Donald Trump is any moment now going to break off into a full blown Hitler-esque dictatorship and start hauling individuals that he hates because he's a bigoted white supremacist in waiting. You think that about him and you really believe he's going to do that stuff. Then why are you not arming up? Why are you not joining the NRA and the National Shooting Sports Foundation? Where are your cards? Where are your subscriptions to the magazines that teach you everything about firearms ownership and your rights? Why are you not a member in one of the organizations like the Second Amendment Foundation where they're launching lawsuits on a daily basis? Those people are the ones you want to be your friends. You want to know them. You want to know their writing. You want to have read their work. You want to have their books on your shelves. And you want to have guns locked and loaded stashed all over the joint and you don't just want to have them there you want to know how to use them you want to be trained and prepared you want to be mentally astute so that you can work through the situation so when that person comes that group of people comes you can stop that ooda loop interrupt it and work it for your own benefit i mean if you don't understand what i'm talking about then you may be one of those people who's a lot of this and I'm wagging my hands together like a lot of talk. You're a lot of gum flapping, but you don't have anything behind the gums. You, there's nothing going on with you. You just talk a whole lot of drama about how Trump is a dictator, but you're not prepared to defend yourself. You don't want to take responsibility for yourself, do you? So either you believe that Donald Trump is a dictator in waiting and you are arming up to the teeth because you want to be prepared to defend yourself. You are meeting with others of like mind and you all know what your rights are as not just individuals, but as the state that you live in, you have contacted anyone in leadership that you, you know, I, this may sound like tinfoil, but I'm just going to let you know, I think Donald Trump is a dictator and he's going to try to take our state over. He's going to try to take our country over. He's going to try to kill people. And we need to be having some kind of a network with which we can operate it inside of command and control structure to make sure that we can defend ourselves. If you believe Donald Trump is a white supremacist and he's Hitler's great, great grandson and you're not doing that, then what is wrong with you? What, what is your issue? Or you don't believe that you just like saying stuff like that because it gets you pats on the back and claps from those in your circle. And it's fun to sit around and be mad and have your blood pressure up. And, you know, your skin feels like it's on fire underneath the surface and you're all you're just worked up over nothing. And, you know, he's not going to do any of that stuff because the military would never respond to that. Our men and women in the U.S. Armed Forces would not follow orders from Donald Trump to round up gay people or blacks or anybody else. They wouldn't do it. You may have a few loons hanging out who might try to do it, and they would promptly be put down by their commanding officers. They would be arrested under the U.S. military code, and they would be jailed. Remember, you are required by the Constitution when you take the oath to serve to follow the orders of your commander-in-chief, but they're the lawful orders. You are not required to follow orders that break U.S. law. So exactly where does this fear come from and why do you keep spouting off about it? Oh, yeah, that's right, because you watch too much CNN. And if you want to be wise and you want to have thought processes that follow through to a natural conclusion and have people think you're normal and not be angry all the time with your skin on fire, then maybe you should stop watching CNN. Don't turn it on right after you get done with the show and don't get mad. Understand this is for your own good.
stop watching CNN. And then start thinking, you know, hey, I may not like this guy. I may not even respect his morals or, you know, what, what everybody has a problem with him. I know. But is your life any better now? And how much of your life being better or not being better can you attribute to actions taken by the president? Because I, I love it when people say, well, I'm just not able to, you know, do things that I want to do because of President Trump. And I'm like, oh, what can't you do? And then they start describing stuff that they can't do because they haven't taken the proper, they don't have the education or they don't have the training or they haven't done the work. I've seen people on Twitter yelling, Twitter yelling, you know, all caps, to people that they've never met before saying, well, you're, you're just doing this and that with your job because, you know, you're white. No, they're probably doing that with their job because they've been working at it for years and years and years. And then finally their talent has come to the fore and they're, they're finally walking in that and experiencing some of the benefits of all that hard work. And hard work is, you know, hard. (laughs) That's the thing about it. I experience this in my own life all the time. I'm like, why can't I? And then I think, well, I need to be regular with X, Y, and Z, don't I? Yeah, we're all in this boat together, y'all. So this whole thing about Venezuelans letting their guns go is the cautionary tale for Americans. We have between 400 and 600 million guns in this country. And I mean, good luck getting them liberals. But if you even dance around with that idea, Look to our South. Look to the Venezuelans. They have no way to defend themselves against the rogue government that currently is oppressing them because they gave up their guns. You ain't getting in from over here. That's what I'll tell you. That's what I'll tell you. All right. God bless you from the heartland. Have a fantastic evening. More Stacey on the right on AFR and Urban Family Talk tomorrow. Tomorrow.